Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning. Are you ready for John chapter 9? Did you read John chapter 9 ahead of time? Or are you just going to take it verse by verse as we go here? Did you get, get into the lesson, get ready for it or anything? I didn't give you any homework, but I just wondered if you read ahead. I normally do read ahead, but I didn't this time. <laughs> well, it took us five, five different lessons to get through John chapter 8. And I, as we speak, the last one is uploading. I didn't get it done this last week. I apologize. It's been kind of a crazy week, but, but it is uploading right now. So all of chapter 8 will be finished on the podcast. But as we begin chapter 9, this is, a, this is a fairly long story. kind of want you to hear the whole story. It'll take us a few weeks to break it apart. But I kind of want you to hear the whole story. So uh, I want to read it, uh, read it for you, ask you to just listen, and, uh, and then we'll break it down. We'll come back. We might just look at the about the first 17 verses or so this morning. The first two verses. (laughs) Says Says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah, says a lot. So let's let's start with verse 1, okay? Let's let the story unfold for us as we come back and discuss it. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, Nobody is like him. He said, I am the man. And they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Turn my page because my booklet has a couple of pages in between of notes till we get to the next scripture. Now, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How could a man who is a sinner do such things, do such signs? There was a division among them, and so they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. 
And so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. That is through verse 34. That is a story that no doubt all of us are familiar with, but perhaps not necessarily uh, familiar with all the significances we find in it and how it unfolds. So the study of chapter 9 is going to be broken into parts, and this morning I want to concentrate on the fact of the metaphor that Jesus again states that he is the light of the world. John, John again states in Jesus' words, I'm the light of the world. Um, I want to talk about blindness and what that means spiritually. I want to talk about sin. Then that comes up in this story quite a bit. And talk about whose fault sin is. And then I want to talk a little bit this morning about this idea of day and night that Jesus brings up. Uh, so, that will give you a, a little idea of where we're going to go in this first lesson. This is obviously the scripture that is famous for inspiring the great hymn. By what title? Do you know? Can you all Jesus tell me? Jesus is the light of the world? No, not the one I'm thinking of. Amazing Grace. Yes, thank you, Tuan. Amazing Grace. What's the famous line of Amazing Grace? I once was lost, but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. This is the story that, this is the story that, that really inspired that hymn. I once, all I can say is, hey, I once was blind and now I see. We see that testimony from this blind man. Well, let's come back to the beginning and look at these first few verses. One of the first things I think we should notice here is that it says, as he was passing by. And that's Jesus, that he is Jesus. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from his birth. What's different about this occasion than some of the other occasions? that Jesus stopped and did miracles and signs? Well, they weren't things that had been since birth uh, to people. I mean, right. lame people hadn't been lame since birth. Maybe. Yeah. And the, you know, the woman at the well. and But he had actually been born blind. That's right. That's the first most important difference in this story is that this man, the, the scripture documents for us that he was born blind blind. Only miracle that Jesus did documented here in the scripture by John that was to a person whose, whose malady, whose problem, whose issue uh, was from birth or you know nothing they did in their life. But yet, I want us to also note that as he's passing by, note that Jesus initiates this confrontation. Jesus initiates this sign. Jesus chooses to stop and talk to this man, doesn't he? The man, remember blind Bartimaeus? Mm -hmm. what, what was the story of blind Bartimaeus? He heard that Jesus was passing by, and he yelled out and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, Bring, uh, come and help me, you know. Restore my sight. So this is different, though. Jesus is walking by, with his disciples, no doubt, and, and this guy he stops and he notices him. I think it's important for us to stop and think Jesus took notice of this man. He didn't have to call or beg for Jesus to come. Jesus chose to go to him. 
Now, verse 2 just hits me right between the eyes. Well, this is the problem. Verse 2 is a, verse two is a powerful uh, combination of, of words because we see in this verse 2 the problem that the Jewish people were plagued with. Exactly. This idea that sin was the fault of the parents and or his own actions. In the ancient world, especially in the Jewish world, they believed that sin was your fault. Somewhere you did something wrong. And that we, we do believe sin is our fault. That's true. But I mean, what I meant to say was they believed that your problem, if you were sick, if you were uh, crippled, if you had an issue like this, then it was your fault. Somewhere it was either your fault because you must have sinned to bring about this problem, or your parents. Your parents must have sinned to bring about this problem. Where did they get that idea? Mine is a reference to Exodus twenty verse five. Okay, Exodus twenty verse five. Read it for us it and says, tell us what it says. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other god. I lay the sins sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Wow. Did y'all hear that? Mm-hmm. Exodus 5? Mm-hmm. If we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, guess what we'd read? Same thing. Mm-hmm. And what, is, what is God saying there? That's Obviously, this is... said that you're not to have any other gods before me. But what is he saying in that passage right there? He's yeah. saying... God says, I'm gonna if I'm gonna visit the sins of the fathers onto the third and fourth generations. Right. Meaning of those who reject me. Of those who reject me, that's right. Of, of why why he's going to. He's specific because he says it's if you have other gods before me, then this is what I will what I will do. And to have another God before God would be a sin. That's right. So he's, he's, that's what the commandments deal with. Exactly. They, they outline sin for us. Yes, Rhonda. To me, it almost sounds like, too, that if the kids sin, it's the parents' fault. But I think it doesn't kind of what you said in there. It's either the, the child is sin or the parents have sin. But I'm thinking it shouldn't be the parents' fault that the kids sin if they're of age to understand right and wrong. And no, it's fair. Uh, not fair. <laughs> How many of you here feel that the sins of your life, the problems of your life, are your parents' fault? No. Oh, definitely. I've made, <laughs> I've made all my own mistakes. <laughs> I think, though, you know, respect like um, how you raise your children, or or what you know, like what what they're raised in is what they know. Mm-hmm. So, but if they choose to, yes, yeah, sure. So if you. <clears throat> If you've rejected God, you don't bring God into the picture. So why wouldn't that go on down to your children? Because you haven't raised them unless they come to know Well, God. if you don't raise them right, I do believe that the children but will, you can raise will actually right. uh, uh, reap what you've sowed, too, Is for that matter. Right. Yeah, Rhonda, go ahead. I have seen some cases where um, the parents do raise their kids right, but their kids... Choose. choose to go a different path. That's true, yeah. too. Yeah. A certain degree, I agree with that. We're, we're, can you see what's happening in the room here? We're struggling with this concept. Mm-hmm. We're struggling with this concept that the Bible, the Word of God, tells us that God's going to visit the sins of our fathers on us Since if we, we sin. And we know we all sin. Yeah. I mean, one thing is clear. Everyone sins. We're, we're supposed to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. The Jewish people struggled with this as well, and they developed a belief by the time of Jesus, it was entrenched in their being, that all sin, all, I mean all disease and all problems, all uh, bad situations were the result of sin, either directly in your life somewhere, you may not know what it is, can't put your finger on it, but it was your sin, or your parents. Well, or your grandparents, or somebody also, down the like, line. Genetically too, like say... Your family has some kind of situation and it goes down yeah. the line because it's genetic. That, that begs a question. They didn't understand genetics in that day, but today we know that there are people, let's say alcoholics or uh, addicts, that can be born with a genetic gene that's passed down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And they're they're predisposed to become alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Predisposed to these kind. Genetically, that's that's possible. So how does that factor into this struggle of thought? It's Adam and Eve's fault. (laughs) (laughs) It's Adam and Eve's fault. (laughs) Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake. You know, the blame goes on and on. Right? The whole conversation is, Adam and Eve were just fine until the serpent came in the tree. There you go. So I, I want to turn the thinking just a little bit here because we're, we're, we, need, we need the whole picture. Let's turn over to the book of Ezekiel. If you want to turn to it, you can. I'll, I'll read some verses out of the book of Ezekiel. Because we've already shown where the Exodus and Deuteronomy both speak about God promising to visit the sins of the fathers on the generations beyond them but but let's listen to the word of Ezekiel Ezekiel comes as prophet of the Lord in a time when the people are uh, they're now at the bottom of the uh, of of their lives they have Babylonian captivity uh, has come they are singing songs of lament and in chapter 18 uh, this is a fascinating chapter I, I'm just going to read a, some fairly big chunks of it to you Okay, we won't do all of it, but here starts at the beginning of chapter 18. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, what is the meaning of this parable among the children of Israel, which says, The fathers eat unripe grapes and the children's teeth grind. That's a, apparently, that's a parable that has been used a lot in the children of Israel. Yours might say the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Mm-hmm. See, one does the action. And the other is the one that feels the consequence. Right. So Ezekiel is saying, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, what is the meaning of this parable among them? It's Verse 3. Sin is, is uh, yeah. wrought out onto the uh, children. Okay, so verse 3 he says, As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this parable in Israel, for all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins, he shall die. But the man who is righteous and does judgment and righteousness, who will not eat on the mountains or lift up his eyes to the inventions of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or who will not approach a woman during her menstruation or oppress any man who will restore to the debtor his pledge and commit no robbery. What is he listing all these things for? Because these are the sins of the people of Israel. And he's listing them. Ezekiel is is prophesying and listing, these are the sins you've all committed. And he goes on and on and on. But he says, however, verse 14, however, if he begets a son who sees all the sins his father commits, but fears and does not do according to these things, does not eat on the mountains, nor set his eyes on the inventions of the house of Israel, nor defile his neighbor's wife, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so yada, yada, yada. I think it's better than blah, 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 blah. What what he's setting up a comparison here. He's already said, you're not going to use that parable anymore. Everybody's soul is accountable, and all souls are mine. The God of creation says all souls are mine. And he says... If a son does this, 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 and this, sinful, hey. But if your son does good, now he doesn't do all of these sins. And now we look at, at what happens. So in verse um, 19, let's skip to verse 19. Yet you say, and he finishes that section from 14 through 18 by saying, the soul that sins dies, the soul that doesn't sin doesn't die, basically. That's, that's how we bring that together. And then yet, in verse 19, he says, Yet you say, why does a son not bear the wrongdoing of his father? See, they've been taught that. That was the law of Moses. They were taught that the sons bear the sins of the fathers. And that means daughters, too. It just means children and parents, okay? Why, why does a son not bear the wrongdoing of his father? Because the son practiced righteousness, Ezekiel says. <laughs> because the son showed mercy, kept all the my commandments and did them thus he will surely live but the soul who sins shall die 
The son shall not bear the wrongdoing of his father, nor shall the father bear the wrongdoing of his son. The righteousness of a righteous man shall be upon himself, and the lawlessness of a lawless man shall be upon himself. But if a lawless man turns from all the lawless deeds he commits, keeps all my commandments, does righteousness, and shows mercy, he will surely live and not die. None of the transgressions he commits will be remembered. In the righteousness he does, he shall live. Do I ever will, this is, this is powerful, this is God talking here. Do I ever will the death of a lawless man? What's God saying there? Do I ever want sinners to die? That's what he's saying here. It's a question, okay. Says the Lord, since my will is for him to turn from the evil way and live. Be careful to note that Ezekiel is is speaking for God and saying it's God's desire that everyone live. God doesn't desire for sinners to die. He desires for them to live. And he goes on in verse 24, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits a wrongdoing according to the lawlessness of a lawless man commits, then all the righteousness he does shall not be remembered. And in the transgression he falls into sin, and in his sins he commits, in these he shall die. What is... What is God saying here through Ezekiel? What are you hearing? Well, that you're responsible for yourself. Okay, yeah. And otherwise, uh, you have, you have uh, uh, choices, and whatever choices you make is what God is going to uh, consider on, on whether you go to heaven or go to hell. That's what it really what it boils down to. And Mark, you look like you had something to say there. Well, Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. The, yeah. the sage philosopher Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. Yeah. Can't do that. Can't say that, can we? Well, in verse, verse 23 in my Bible, like the NASB, uh-huh. says, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Yeah. No. And the answer doesn't. is no. Because Absolutely. he loves everybody. So, even the wicked. What, what we're hearing here, this is so important for us. Uh, that whole chapter finishes out. We won't keep reading in it, but it's an interesting study. Never forget chapter 18 of the book of Ezekiel because it directly counters the thoughts of what we read in the Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Law of Moses. And what, how does the Old Testament show us these two things seemingly very contradictory? They, they seem to contradict one another. I don't think it's contradictory at all. I think it's. You don't. You could put it into. I, the, the think think with me for a minute. Sense. Think what I'm asking. Yeah. The children's sour grapes. Okay. Uh-huh. The, the Old Testament law was. Yeah. The, you, the, the, the sin's going to be visited on them. Ezekiel right. says, "No, it's not." How's that not contradictory? See what I'm trying to say? There's a there's a very big contradiction here. But this is under the new covenant. No, this is still Old Testament. This is Ezekiel. Yeah, but this, isn't, this is also telling us that Jesus is coming. It is. He's a prophet, and he's right. prophesying. So the question becomes, when Ezekiel's delivering these words to them, what hope did those people have? The Messiah was coming. But did they, did they understand no. that they were set free then? Not really. They didn't have to wait for it, because these people that Ezekiel's talking to, they're not going to live when, they're not going to live long enough to see they're Jesus They're not born. understanding it completely, but I think maybe that they, some of them a good share of them are probably getting the gist of it. Okay, so what we're trying to work out here in our theology is that God has always had the same view towards sin. We've always all been accountable for our sin. But in the olden days, if we go all the way back to the time of Moses, the relationship of God with his people as as in terms of a religious relationship, a way of life that follows the law and commandments was just in its infancy. And it was the way of the ancient world that there was no mercy, that the sins of the fathers did fall upon them, their children and their children's children, and thus and thus. But that's never been God's design. And as the children of Israel grew into relationship with God, they should have known better. Because God is a merciful God. And all throughout the Old Testament, he shows and teaches mercy and gives them chance after chance after chance. But you're right in that Ezekiel does begin to prophesy there is coming a time when God says, I will put a new heart within my people. 
And that's the time of Jesus. And that brings us present to the present story in John chapter 9. Okay. These people, these rabbis, it says, and then verse 2, it says rabbi. They're, they're asking him, who, hey rabbi, they're calling Jesus rabbi. But these Jews, now who are the Jews? Always sure. talking about the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews, not the rank and file people. Okay, The leaders of the Jews, they come to him and they say, rabbi, you know what it's our teaching. Our teaching is that this man must have sinned or his parents must have sinned. And Jesus says, no. No, that's neither is the case. He, he, he just literally answers them, doesn't he? He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. Jesus turned what they've built their system on upside down. It's not about his sin or his parents' sin that he is somehow lame or blind or crippled or whatever. Or diseased. In this case, it's blind from birth. And it's so important for us to notice that Jesus really does turn this upside down for them. Now he's going to he's going to tell them that the reason is is so that the works of God could be manifest. And I quite seriously doubt that they quite understood that because they have such hard hearts. But as the story plays out, we're going to understand it. And what's fascinating. And the way, reason I wanted to read the whole story in advance was so that you could see how this man who's healed begins to understand it. When he meets Jesus, who does he see? And well, he sees the Messiah. He sees a man. No, oh, he just yeah, sees yeah. a man in the beginning. Yeah, okay. in the beginning. He yeah. Did, yeah. And then as the story progresses, they ask who he is. Well, what's his first answer? Well, he's a prophet. So he's been healed. He's a prophet. And then as the story progresses, they keep needling him. They bring the parents in and they keep seeing it. And he can then answer the question. He says, he's what? So you can't, I can't believe you can't see that he's from God. That's what he says in those later. It's a, what a marvel. You think that this guy is not from God and he healed me? So we see, in a, we see a change, a metamorphosis taking place in the life of this man just by thinking through the interactions that the Jews are having with Jesus and with him and his parents. A great change is taking place. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, no, it's not about sin. It's so that God can be manifest through this man. So that God can be glorified in the, the healing. First of all, let's let's think about this idea of sin. Was this man born in sin or not? Do we have an understanding of what sin is? Probably was. Okay. Let's think. I want to use this as a teaching point to talk to you a little bit about sin. I put it on the board: sin and fault. Okay. This man was born in sin just like every human being is born in sin. That's the doctrine of what is called original sin. Sometimes it's called ancestral sin. Okay? The sin of our ancestors. Okay? Meaning Adam and Eve. And it's visited upon all of us in that Mm -hmm. sense. Because we're all born. Okay? In in the consequence of that sin. But is that sin our fault? No, not really. No, it's not our fault. Our original sin or ancestral sin is not our fault. I, I didn't ask, first of all, I didn't ask to be born. And second of all, I didn't ask to be born into a sinful world. Now, is it Adam and Eve's fault? Yes. They had a free will and they chose to sin. And so everything changed at that point. If you go back into the creation story, no longer are human beings born completely, well, are created completely in the image of God, they're born in the image of Adam. That's what the story tells us. That when when Adam and Eve began to have children, now their children, it says, were born in the image of Adam. Now, we still all, because we're human and humanity is God's creation, we all carry the stamp of God in our soul. We are, we are, we all carry the image of God, okay, within us somewhere. But, be, but ours looks different than theirs because ours is marred by all the sin, okay? So humanity is born in 
a state of sin, but that's not a sin that's our fault. That's a sin that's our parents' fault. Okay? But at some point, we all sin and it becomes our fault. Right? Every one of us has committed sin of our own free will. And that now we're accountable for. That's what Ezekiel is saying. Now you will be accountable for your own sin. There's enough sin to go around. And the soul that sins is the one that's going to die. But nobody's going to die because of original sin. So when are you accountable for your sins? I've heard sometimes that there's an age of accountability. Yeah, we don't know, do we? Yeah, I don't think I don't think we can answer that. I do, I wish I could, but I don't think it's up to us to know that. But I think inside us we can answer. We can't answer it about other people, but I think inside us we can begin to understand it because the Holy Spirit works with us to help us understand. When you start to feel guilt over your sin, all of a sudden you realize you're accountable, right? That's what guilt is. But but it's important while we're talking about fault or guilt, I, I want to use the word guilt here too, is that this original sin, this ancestral sin, we're not guilty of that. So we don't we, carry the guilt of Adam. Adam carries the guilt of are Adam. We, are we exonerated of that? Well, sadly, I wouldn't call us exonerated because exonerated means that, that you're trying to exonerate guilt. Yeah. And the only one that's guilty of Adam's sin is Adam. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but but does Adam's sin affect me? Of course it does. Yeah. yeah. So what I have to so what we're born in, we're born into us we're born into a world that is full of sin. I'm born with a propensity to sin. My nature has a propensity to sin. But I'm not guilty of it. So now this became very important in the early church because there were some teachers like St. Augustine, okay, St. Augustine in the 5th century wrestled with this concept of original sin and he came down on the side that humanity is guilty of Adam's sin and therefore the only answer is to be washed with baptism and therefore until you're baptized you cannot get rid of original sin and therefore the sin that is not bat- the soul that is not baptized dies out of relationship with God and ends up in hell that became the doctrine of the early medieval church through the teachings of St. Augustine, primarily, there were others. Now that, I don't know about you, but that makes me cringe a little bit. Okay? I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with a God who's going to punish me to hell because I haven't understood I should have been baptized all because of another person's sin. That makes God out to be a monster, if you think about it with me. Now, Augustine wasn't trying to make God a monster. Augustine was trying to wrestle with this, how could God be sovereign and, and deal with all of this. And, and I think he just stepped wrongly. But the church followed him. The church in the West, the Western Christian church, followed Augustine's teaching. And that's why infant baptism became so important. We've got to baptize these infants or they're going to hell. Because we got to get the stain of original sin off their soul. Okay? But that wasn't always the case because, you know, you know I've taught you there's a d- difference between Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. And the original Christian faith started in the East, not in the West. It started in Jerusalem. Okay? In Antioch. These are the places where the church was born and eventually spread to the West. Because there was a very different way of thinking between the Latin world in the West and the Greek world in the East. But in the Greek world, they never understood the doctrine of original sin as guilt. They understood it as consequence. The consequence. The consequence of original sin is that we're all going to die. You and I are going to die, and there is nothing we can do to escape it. Why? Because of Adam. Okay? That's the consequence. We are now born mortal. Adam was created immortal. We're born mortal. It's a consequence. It's a sin of our ancestor, and it has a great consequence. Now, John Wesley picked up a lot on the writings of these early Greek Eastern fathers on this idea of ancestral sin, and it affected his theology of grace and his theology of entire sanctification greatly. What John Wesley was seeing in the early teachings of the Eastern Church was John Wesley was seeing that 
that this propensity to sin needed a cure. And that cure was in the sanctifying grace of God. Now the sanctifying grace of God washes us clean, purifies our heart, brings us into entire devotement to God. These are the phrases and the things that Wesley began to use and discover in his, in his preaching and teaching. And that's why as Wesleyans, we would not say that because of original sin, you're bound to hell. We would say you're bound to a life of sin and the, the, the answer to the sin is, is the Holy Spirit of God purifying your heart. Okay? So there's a difference in what some Christians teach about these things, about sin and the doctrine of sin. And we could go on and on and study that a lot deeper, and we don't have time for it today, but I wanted to bring it up because it affects what we're talking about. God is very clear in the book of Ezekiel. As far back as the book of Ezekiel, let me put it that way. is very clear that the soul that sins is the one that dies, and the soul that doesn't, doesn't. Now, go ahead. Well, like our, we're born into sin, but the, the second birth, are we born out of sin by grace? The second birth, like Jesus talks when, about in John chapter 3 when, when we went through the story with Nicodemus to be born again. Right. That's what we call the second birth. Yeah. So are we born out of sin at that point then, by grace? What do you mean by out of sin? Um, that our sins are covered by grace, I guess, that... We are born into sin. We cannot help that. But when we surrender and have our second birth, mm-hmm. um, Christ takes care of our sins for us. I think, we're de- I think we're delivered from the consequence of our own committed sins. Okay? Yeah. Consequence of our committed sins, which is, okay. which is what? The consequence of our committed sins is as... Is death. That's right. Okay. But at the second birth, then we are covered, or we're delivered from that sin and that that uh, judgment of death. But are we de- eternal life? But we've got to be careful with our language. Are we delivered from sin? No, we still can sin, but our sins are yes. covered. But we can also ask for forgiveness of our yeah. sins. So let's think. I want. I want you to think. I want you to think about the. I want you to think about this. This is good discussion. This is deeply with me. What happens when we're quote born again? I feel like our the Holy Spirit becomes alive in our life and leads us and guides us, and we, it, we it, are. He becomes. I think he. Be, it's 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 like it's like starting over. I think Jesus used those phrases. On purpose, Nicodemus didn't understand it. It might be a good good for us to go back and re-listen to chapter three when we discuss that, because I think it's it bears. We can't learn it enough. But the idea that we are born again is this whole idea of starting over. A newborn infant is fresh and pure, has no sinful thoughts. Okay, it's just pure, and it's got to grow for a while, and it's going to have to figure out its own will, and it's going to learn very quickly. Sadly, that there is a will and to and sin, to choose to sin, and and uh, and so and so and so in that what what I think is happening in that new birth is that we are getting the doctrine that we would teach us. It's called the regeneration. We are regenerated. We are now a new person in Christ. Paul says it in Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, okay, what he means is if he's born again, if he's become in the faith of Jesus Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But what does that new look like? Now, I could spend the rest of our lives figuring out what does that new look like? It doesn't, what it doesn't look like is it doesn't look like a perfect, exactly perfect human like Adam was who will never sin. Because even Adam had the propensity to sin. So even though we're born again, we still can sin. Yeah. We still have that propensity to sin. So what does it mean that our sins are covered by the blood? Let's think that through because you use that phrase. It's a, it's a fun phrase. It's a good phrase. Hymn writers use it, you know. He covers our sin and, and it's, a, it's wonderful. What does it mean that he Anything covers our sin? Anything that we've confessed. He's taken it okay. to the cross for us. He died okay. for our sins. Okay. Well, if he died for our sins, why do we need to confess him? <laughs> if he took him to the cross and covered them all, why do still, I need to confess him? We still have See how challenging this the gets? propensity to sin. 
See how challenging it gets? We have to confess those. And and when did Jesus die for our sins? Before we even, we were even. Did he die on, did he die on a hill of Calvary on 33 AD? Yes, but no, yeah. He, yeah, he, he did. He, he died for us. <laughs> then why does Paul say in why does Paul say in Scripture that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation exactly. of the world? And if I haven't even committed my sins yet, there, if I'm I'm 57 years old, and I hope I never sin again. I, I really hope that's what I give up every day, wanting to serve the Lord, and I hope I never sin again. Um, I'm going to try. I believe by the grace of God that's possible, even though maybe not probable, depending on how holy I've allowed the Holy Spirit to make me become to this point in my life. But, but if I do, I'm not a saint. That's right. But, at the, but at, the point of, at the point of my future sins, are they already forgiven? No. I think you have to confess the sin that's now. Are they, are they, are they already forgiven or are they? Are they if they're not repeatable? I will bury sin. your sins as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> and here's, here's okay. we're, we're now we're thinking through some we're thinking through some really good deep theology here. Okay, this is really important stuff. Let me let me show you a, th- a, a maybe a new way to think for some of you, yeah. but but I want to show it to you. Okay, when Jesus Christ died on the cross in time and space, that was that that we could walk back through time on a timeline to the, maybe the year 33 AD, whatever it was on the calendar, there was a day when he really did physically die on the cross. That death was efficacious, which means it was good for every sin ever committed and every sin that would ever be committed. Okay? Already, in that moment in time. Why was that so? Why was that so? Because before the foundation of the world, God in his knowledge knew everything that would ever happen. He knew that mankind would sin. He knew that we would need a savior. And he knew that he was going to have to send his son. And the remedy was already there in the mind and heart of God before he ever spoke the world into existence. And so... You see, the life of God exists outside of time and space. We're finite beings in time and space. So we think before, during, and after. And God, it's just all is. It's just all present. It's just all being. And, and, and so the cross of Jesus Christ, this, this really becomes important because I've been working through this in my preparation for the sermon. This week I'm preaching Mark's Not Here, and we're going to celebrate communion. Pastor Mark is not able to be here and I'm preaching. We're going to celebrate communion and the structure of the, the, the service, the message will flow into communion. And I've been wrestling with some of these thoughts myself in preparation for it. Because the truth is when we come to communion, the, the, the sacrament of communion, we're coming to the cross. You ever heard those hymns that say the blood still flows from Calvary? Well, how could it still flow? That was back in 33 AD. It will continue to flow for, for eternity. Because it's efficacious. Okay. Because it truly happened outside of time and space. Mm-hmm. And will always be efficacious for any sin that's ever committed. Now, I truly believe that you and I have to appropriate that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I can't say, well, because Jesus died, <laughs> I'm forgiven. All my future sins are forgiven. It really doesn't matter. No, I can't say that. I don't believe I can say that. We have to repent. That's right. Paul says that. Paul says as much in the book of Romans when he says, What shall I say? Since we have grace, shall sin abound even more? Oh, no. May it never be. That's right. It also says right in there that you can die in your sin. Absolutely. If we fail to repent, if we fail to repent. So the question becomes, when am I accountable for any sin that is personal to me? Not original sin, not ancestral sin. That's the, that's the sinful nature, if we can use that word. I, I don't like to always use that word because nature by nature is good that God created. Because God created human nature, but it's marred. Okay, that's the propensity to sin. But for the, the sins I actually commit, 
When am I accountable for them? It's unconfessed. Always. I mean, aren't you accountable for it every day, every second? That it's under <laughs> the grace of God that it's forgiven? If we ask for it. When am I accountable for anything? Okay. So, if, if in my heart, okay, I want to commit a crime, but I'm a good person and I'm not going to do it. But I've been, I've been tempted. Let me tell you, I've been tempted. Of course, we all. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. This isn't my confession. I'm just using this as a. I'm just using this as a. Better explain myself. I'm using this as a as an example. Let's let's say, boy, have I been contempted. You know, okay, okay. I was tempted in my heart. Okay, but I didn't do it because I'm. I've got enough good knowledge. Okay, when 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 am I accountable for the sin? I think that's a sin. But I didn't do it. In your heart, in your that's right. In your heart, you did it. That's right. Sin, accountability for sin. What did you say, Gloria? You cannot, I don't know what the word would be, but you okay. cannot, uh, you cannot something for your thoughts. I mean, they just come. Yes. Okay, so the, I see what you're trying to say. So when does a thought become sin? First, first, let's answer the question, am I accountable for that sin? If it's a sin I've thought about in my heart, now, that's a phrase in my heart. That means I really wanted to do it. I'm dwelling on it. Let's make it clear. Now, I'm just using myself as the person. I'm just using this as a metaphor, but it could be any one of us I could say this about. A person, okay? But let's don't be too easy on ourselves either, okay? Because Jesus said, when you call your neighbor a fool, you're guilty. Okay? So... Let's don't be too easy on ourselves. Yeah, Tuan. Okay, if, if you think something, you just kind of, you know, have a running thought and that it just keeps on going. You're not keeping it in your heart. It's just something that popped in your head and went on. Right. That is not sin. Then I'm not accountable. I want to use the phrase as accountable. I'm not accountable for the thoughts that come to me. I can't stop thoughts from coming to me. Okay? I can't, I'm not accountable for the temptations I feel because in this human world, we're going to have thoughts and we're going to be tempted. Sometimes I've heard like when you're walking down a sidewalk and there's a hole and you fall in the hole and you walk down that sidewalk and you keep falling in the hole, you need to learn to take another path. Take another path. That's right. So <laughs> it's going to be. I am accountable for the things that I do that put me in sin's way. Okay. But I want to really. Go ahead, Mark. Our preacher told me one time, he said, you can't prevent birds from flying over your head. But you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Right, okay. right. I agree with that. That's this, that's a good analogy of this idea of letting those thoughts become heartfelt right. intentions, and then from heartfelt intentions, sometimes they become actions. But what I want us to hear is that our accountability is when they're in the heart, because sin, committed sin, account that not of, not ancestral, but committed. We'll say there's two kinds of sin: original ancestral or committed sin. Committed sin is always a matter of the heart, of the intention of the will, okay? And it's for that that we are guilty before God and need redemption and must repent, must confess and repent. You had another so thought? do you not think if, I, I know we can't help it when thoughts come up in our head, we're human. Right. Um, but I'm saying, um, I mean, I don't have thoughts like that, you know, but um, I'm just saying if a person has wrongful thoughts, isn't that a sin? No, not unless they take it into the place of their heart and begin to dwell on it. And, and now again, what's the fine line? When does that become sin? Okay, so see how gray this area can be? When, when does it, we, we cannot, if we would say that every thought was a sin, well, then there's no escaping sin in this world, period. There's no holiness at all. Because we cannot, our human brain, we can't control the way our brain reacts. They say we use about 10% of our brain. You know, and the reality is we cannot stop thoughts from coming to us. But we can, it, it, we can by our own free will, we can choose what to do with those thoughts. And that's why I say we got to let them not get too deep into our heart. Years ago where I worked... I could see out this big window, and across the street they were building a bank. 
and I was bored at my job, and um, so for about uh, two or three months, I speculated on how I could rob this bank because I could see how it was being built, and so I kept thinking about. You've been watching a lot of robbery movies. <laughs> I would just sit there and think about, okay, well, I know where they put the vault, and <laughs> I know that it's on a slab, and, you know, I was, I just yeah. saw these things. Yeah. I don't think that was a sin, okay. because it was a game to me, and it wasn't hurting right. anyone. Right. If I would have actually wrote down my ways to get in, and then proceeded to buy the tools, and and do it. Yes, I believe that's a sin. I was having a game. You know right. you weren't going right. to do it. But I knew, I, yeah, I, yeah. I knew yeah. I wasn't going to do it. Right, right, right. right. The intention. So yeah. the, word, the key word there is intention. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm saying it's the intention of our mm -hmm. hearts that makes us accountable for that our sin. That would have been a good video game. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how, most, that's how most great stories are born, by somebody thinking through something that... Um, I wasn't that deep. So, <laughs> So do you see how it's the intention of the heart? Everything is about the... This is why John Wesley began to redefine from what a lot of Christians had defined sin throughout the Middle Ages, the medieval period and the Middle Ages on up into the modern era. The, the, the Christians often defined sin, committed sin, as just any deviation, any imperfection, any deviation from God's law. Well, those thoughts are... Our devi everything's a deviation, you know, because we're not God, and we are imperfect. But yet, Wesley said, no, no, I think it's not any deviation from the law of God, it's any willful deviation or transgression from a known law of God. Okay, so she because... She could have wrote it down, and she could have bought the tools, but she didn't do it, that's real different, Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so now think with me. Is there a scenario where she would not have been... Let's, let's think with me. Is there a scenario where even if she was thinking, I'm really going to do this. I, I, I've seen their secrets. I know how they built the building. I'm really going to do this. But not Linda, the Linda we know, okay. But a Linda who wasn't a Christian. A Linda who didn't understand really this idea of right from wrong. We have a hard time believing there are people that don't understand right from wrong in our modern culture. We have a hard time with that. But, but yet, because it seems so common sense to us. But yet, is there a sense in which a person can do something that we see as sinful, but for them, God is not holding them accountable for it because they don't understand the sinfulness of the act. You see what I'm trying to say? This is, this is a very important point. That keeps us from being the judges of the world and leaving judgment to God. Thank goodness. Okay. And some kids well, haven't been taught, you know. That's right. They we, grew up in a home where... All around us, there are people who do things that we may disagree with. As Christians, we may disagree with, we may think are not right, we may think they're absolutely sinful, but I am not their judge, and I do not know to what level their heart even discerns the right from wrong in that. Okay? So, culpability. That's a huge word. Culpability means when am I accountable? You have an alcoholic. Okay. It's a disease. Okay. You can't help being an alcoholic, I guess, if you've given in to the temptation and drink. Okay. You're driving a car, you hit someone, and they're dead. Yeah. That's considered vehicular murder, you're going to spend time for it. Did he... Hmm? Did he sin? Did he sin for murder, or is he? I mean, that's something I wouldn't know how to judge at all. That's why we have laws. The law says yes, he's guilty, but is he guilty of sin against God? I don't know. Right. And that's where I cannot judge. And that's where. Right. That's we, where you can really get bogged down. You can really get bogged down, and we, so we must always have an understanding that we are not the judge. Of people, God is. Okay. Now we can 
see things that we think we, this is why we minister, this is why we do things, this is why we offer programs and classes. We want to guide people, we want to help them, we want to help them come to learn perhaps what we already know about right and wrong and good and evil. You know, that's, but that's a journey. That's a journey they have to come through. You know, we've been on that journey all of our lives because everybody in this room maybe was born into a Christian family. I don't know. But if you were born into a Christian family in the 21st century, one of the great radio preachers that I love to listen to, he says, you won the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you got it made. You were born into the easiest world, the world is, in the easiest life the world has ever known. You know? You were born into, so you won the lottery. You're, but, but not everyone has that life. So this culpability of sin is huge. And this is what, though, in this passage, I, I, let's kind of bring that section, if I can, to a summation. The idea that I want you to grasp is that there are two kinds of sin in this world. There's the original sin, for which we are not guilty, I believe. But we have to live with its effects. Okay? And its effects are death. It kills us off from the life of God. That's why we are born alienated from God. It's why we are not in relationship with God from the moment we're born. And it's why we need a Savior. But there are also committed sin. The things that we set our will to do in this life. And that when we know they're wrong, we are accountable. And Christ is the only answer. He is the forgiveness. Because He did die on the cross. And He did shed His blood. Once and for all. For every sin ever committed. So, all the sins that are ever going to be committed in this world until Jesus returns have already been forgiven. But they have not already been appropriated in their forgiveness. If I can use those words. You see what I'm saying? Jesus doesn't need to die again in order to forgive the sins of the future. He's already died. But we need to appropriate them through our repentance and confession when they come to our accountability, yes. Is there little sins or big, big sins? I mean, all sins are sins. Well, I think at some point there, there's both. Um, I, I think there is, there has always been a way, and that's why John Wesley's talking about this definition. There, there, there's, there's any deviation is sin. Sure, that's true to an extent, but only the big sins are the ones that cut us off from the life of God. Okay, that's John says that in First John chapter five. He says. There are some sins that don't lead to death, but I'm talking about the sins that really do lead to death. He calls them mortal sins, okay? Now, just because the other sins are little, if we want to use that phrase, okay, just because they're little, does that mean they don't matter? Or what if I ask you this, which sin offends God the most, the little devi deviations, the little sins, or the big sins? You know, murder, stealing, robbery, Think of the commandments. Those are the, those are the big ones, okay? I don't think it, he differentiates between them. Our tongue is the wickedest thing ever. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I think I was challenged once to learn that I think the littler sins offend God the most. Probably. You know why? Because the, the little ones, I'm talking about for us that are guilty of sin, okay? For us that are culpable as Christians, okay? As Christians that should know better. Because the little sins were taking God's grace for granted. Yeah. We're taking them for granted. What about the sins of omission where you know to do something? Yeah. Is that a little sin or is that? guess it depends on what the sin is. What was the thing that was omitted? I don't know. But I still think murder and that, he does not. Well, of course not. Those are against the, those are the biggies. Okay. And my point is, if we live our lives thinking, well, at least I'm not the big sinner. Okay. So, now who do we sound like? We sound like, the. remember the story of the publican and the Pharisee? The publican says, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee says, well, at least I'm not like that. <laughs> who do you want to be, the Pharisee or the publican? I want to be the publican. Who says, I know I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me. Maybe my sins are little. Maybe I didn't rob a bank. Maybe I didn't do, but I'm still a sinner. God, have mercy on me. That's, that's the point of that story that Jesus tells between the Pharisee and the publican. If we're not careful, we become Pharisees real quick by judging everybody else's intentions. Okay? And that's what Jesus is encountering in this story. 
He's encountering people that have judged all the intentions. They've been doing it for centuries because it's their belief that you are sinful and that's why you're suffering. Well, we're sinful, but that's not necessarily why we're suffering. (laughs) I think God probably condemns us more for bigotry, uh, sins of, of where we judge someone else, I think mm-hmm. probably that he, he comes down harder on us for that than he does for some of the big sins. The remedy for sin is love. Right. The remedy for sin for us was the love of God, and the remedy of our sins toward each other is love for each other. The greatest commandment of all. Exactly. That's why it's the greatest commandment. So what we need to be is less focused on who's the sinner around us right. and more focused on who am I. And how am I living up to loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind, and loving everyone else the same? That's what Jesus says is the most important thing. That's what we need to be about. And when we get our hearts and minds focused on love, loving God and loving others, it's amazing how our sins begin to fall into place. Our sinfulness, let me say, begins to fall into place. And this is why we believe in the doctrine of holiness. We believe God calls us to be holy, not just sinners saved by grace, but holy sinners saved by grace. Do our best okay? People that try, do our best to let the Holy Spirit guide us, and people that try to live in the power of God's Holy Spirit, not in our power. And that's a journey. That's a journey, and it's a process, and it's something that's why we're in Bible study today. We want to be holy. Amen. We want this. Why we come to church? We not because we don't want to offend God, but because we we want to be holy. We want to learn. We want to. It's why we read our Bibles. It's why we pray. It's why we, you know. The, and, and Jesus, this is going to segue. This will be a good segue to next week, because Jesus takes this answer. This answer. No, it's not about his sin. It's not about his parents' sin. Jesus says that's a separate issue, but. The, it's that the works of God might be made manifest in him. Now notice with me in verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night comes when no one can work. Jesus didn't say, I must work the works for which God has sent me. Did he? He said, we. We, that's right. This, isn't, this story is just not all about Jesus. It's about you and I joining with Jesus. We must do the works that God has prepared. This man's going to be glorified. Look at these apostles. These apostles are teaching. They're learning. They're, they're going to watch Jesus heal this man in a, an incredible way that we'll talk about next week with this clay he made from the ground. And, and, and we'll talk about all that and the significance of it next week. But, but the apostles, think about them. They're learning. They're watching. And then... In just a few short years, Jesus is going to go back to heaven, and they're going to be the ones out there walking by somebody. Peter, James, and John are going to be walking to the temple, and there's going to be a beggar sitting there. And they've seen him all their lives, but now they see him in Jesus' eyes. And the beggar says, alms for the poor? And he says, silver and gold have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Rise and walk. And that man was healed. We must do the work. Of Jesus Christ. And a pastor one time told me that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. Absolutely. We're the hands, the feet, we're everything. We are the light that Jesus is going to talk about the light of the world. John says several times in this book, he puts those words into to the story of Jesus where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Do you remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about the lamp? He said, what does he say? You're the light of the world. Right. <laughs> Because there's a coming a time when Jesus is going back to heaven. And in, a, in essence, that's nighttime for this world because he's not our present. He's not the present. The light of Christ is not present in our world except in you and I, in you and me, in us. That's why Jesus was able to say, you're like a light shining on a hill. Okay? Don't put it under a bushel. Don't put it under a bushel. So... Lots to learn here. Thank you for your time today. Just a, this is a deep, deep chapter. A deep chapter. Your time. 
And, and we're going over deep stuff. You're very welcome. We're going over deep stuff I know about sin. And, and it's a little mind-boggling, but just keep staying there with me. We'll keep, we'll keep going. But thank you for your time today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time together to study your word, to ask the deep questions uh, of the soul. We want to know the deep truths of your spirit, Father. And so as we study, I pray that you would just open the word to us by your spirit. Help us to not, help me not to say anything that's wrong or to, to, to teach and lead people astray. But let us be guided by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.